You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 22nd of January, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, dire warnings for China as its economy shows the weakest pace of growth in almost 30 years. Could it be much worse than Beijing is letting on? And in past where China has been a bright spot in propping up a weaker global economy, will this time be different amidst simmering trade tensions? My guests Linda Yu and Ivor Gaber will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the leaders of France and Germany have resigned a post-war pact cementing their friendship and commitment to work together. Will it go a long way for the EU as Brexit, populism and social division threaten to tear it all apart? And speaking of Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn changes course. MPs back a rival plan to the prime ministers and the EU says no deal would definitely mean a hard border in Ireland. Just a few developments to dig into. Plus, what would it take for you to go to work early every single day to help ease congestion on public transit? How does free lunch sound? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, economist, broadcaster, and author of The Great Economist, and Ivor Gaber, broadcaster and professor of political journalism at the University of Sussex. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. Let's begin by taking a look at China, where the country's economic growth has slowed to a rate not seen since 1990. And earlier this week, Chinese officials said during the last three months of 2018, the economy grew at its slowest pace since the global financial crisis. Where China's economy is often a bright spot when there is concern elsewhere, the bad news this week is raising questions on what the impact will be globally and how big a role the ongoing trade war between the world's two largest economies is playing. Linda, I know you've just taking a sip of tea, but I want to start with you here. Uh, factories and assembly plants have slowed uh, or closed altogether across China. Uh, domestic sales in cars and smartphones have stalled, and the real estate market has stagnated there. This is a pretty dire picture across the board. Isn't that right? Um, I think there's certainly a slowdown. There's been a slowdown in Chinese growth for mm. about three quarters of the last nine months of last year. But, I mean, if we look at the actual numbers, mm. um, so 6.6% uh, last year exceeded the target of 6.5%. The fourth quarter of last year was 6.4%. So roughly speaking, 6.5%. Mm. So I always think we shouldn't be surprised that a country which is approaching upper middle income status um, has slowed down. I mean, in Britain, if we mm. grew at, you know, 4%, We'd be ecstatic if China grew four percent. People would be, you know, completely worried. Mm. So as China slows down, really the rate should be the slowest, really since the early 1980s when they yeah. started reforming. So we should expect that continued slowdown. But some of the other things that you've picked up are absolutely worrying the Chinese authorities. So you've got the structural slowdown because they're getting richer, and then you've got the cyclical slowdown. Cyclical slowdown is picked up by declining car sales. Uh, retail sales is just about holding up. It ticked up a little bit in the December figures from 8.1 to about 8.3 or so. Mm. I wouldn't put too much credence on the exact numbers. Um, but in other words, economic activity is still going on. But clearly, the trade war is weighing on sentiment. And the Chinese government is now doing what they probably um, should have um, 
in one sense, not do, right. which is to make lending easier, because that's how you grow in a sort of unbalanced, not qualitative way. But what they probably should have done last year is to think about tax cuts, which is right. they're thinking about this year. So that would boost things like consumer spending on consumer durables. That would help producers cushion some of the increased costs from U.S. tariffs. Right. So they're worried enough to cushion the cyclical slowdown. But if you think about the U.S. last year and their fiscal stimulus, and the two biggest economies are really close trading partners, you can argue that China probably should have started thinking about put, putting more money into the pockets of their people last year. Right. But, you know, to defend them a little bit, um, the U.S. was unusual in doing a fiscal stimulus um, when the... Uh, at this point in the economic cycle. At the same so, time. So part yeah. of it's it's in understanding how to read the numbers, I guess. Yeah. But also, it's it's not that surprising and, and uh, you know, maybe not as dire beyond uh, the headlines. But, Ivor, there has been uh, predictions about what the effects would be on China since the trade spat uh, with Donald Trump's White House started. But uh, European investment in China has also slowed. So this goes beyond the U.S. as well. There's, there's more strings here, right? Yeah, it's to use that old cliche, it's a bit of a perfect storm because there's the cyclical issues and, 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 the, and the structural issues that Linda's raised, but the Donald Trump was an extraneous factor that no economist could have predicted coming in. But then also the slowdown in Europe um, has, has has impacted. I think one of the things, just, just pondering it, I don't think people in this country recognise to what extent the um, Chinese economy is important to them. They see it as a negative factor generally. Ah, you know, they sell all these Chinese goods are coming in and they won't let our goods come in. But actually, you know, we've seen in the last few weeks um, Jaguar Land Rover closing here because their biggest market is China. We see um, Dyson's, the who manufacture... Um, what are they? Domestic products mm. moving to Singapore. Don't say Hoover's. Moving to Singapore because they want to be closer to the Chinese market. So I, I think there's okay. We're Brexit obsessed, but stepping back for a moment, I think the Chinese economy is affecting the man and woman in this street much more than they tend to recognise, um, which is why it's a really important topic. Mm. Uh, really interesting, uh, Linda. Just floating this idea, but could could the numbers actually be worse than than China is letting on that data that they actually do? release officially? Yeah, I think it's really hard to know. Um, I wouldn't take any data coming out of China as being precise to right. a decimal point. I think in general, the sentiment is worsening. In general, real incomes are still rising. In general, consumption is still rising, but at a slower pace. So the question is, would um, not just the trade uh, tensions, but actually investment restrictions, right. all of these things are weighing on sentiment pretty heavily. That, I think, is how um, things which are hard to quantify can really weigh down an economy, which is beginning a structural and cyclical um, move downwards. That's always a hard time. Right. And I don't think you need precise economic data to see that is actually what's happening in China. People don't know how much their income growth is going to slow. They don't know how bad the trade war is going to be with the United States. Will it really be resolved by March? They don't know how much investment restrictions are really going to affect mm. um, Chinese entrepreneurs um, expanding overseas. So I think all of those things are why um, this is probably, as the IMF said, 
um, one of the riskier, one of the two major risks um, in the global economy. Mm, yeah. um, and the other one is debt, which China also has issues with. So, <laughs> Well, you do mention the International Monetary Fund uh, has downgraded its ex- expectations for the global economy. Germany's industrial engine has slowed as well. The U.S. economy also slowing after years of growth and low unemployment. Um, uh, you know, with tough policies from Beijing towards foreign investors sometimes, that has, that has often scared off companies, Ivor. But, you know, could those be relaxed to, to start new growth, do you think? Is, it, is that part of it or is there well, something think, more at play? I mean, the, 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 there's another issue which we haven't discussed that although the, the Chinese economy is to a large extent a capitalist economy, it's a state-controlled capitalist economy mm. and there are political considerations, um, not just economic. And I suppose... The fear. I mean, there are tra- there are suggestions that the gov- the China, the Beijing is favouring state-controlled enterprises over the privately o- privately privately owned enterprises. It's redirecting directing investment away from the private sector towards the state sector, and I think that comes back to the political issue of the Chinese government wanting to ensure that it maintains overall control of the macro economy, which it may be feared was slipping away from it. So it's not taking decisions only on an economic basis. I don't know whether Linda would agree, but that certainly looks like the trend to me, Mm. that there is a political dimension to their economic decisions. Well, we did mention off the top the latest data was was in line with expectations, perhaps, Linda. But but how much pressure does this actually put on uh, Beijing to to strike a deal with Washington, if at all? Mm. Or vice versa. Or vice versa, sure, yeah. I think, uh, well, it's it's quite interesting because um, both the Americans and the Chinese, neither of whom are at Davos this year, because they both have domestic issues at home. So that actually tells you one of the, um, already one of the casualties, if you want to yeah, use that sure. term, from the US-China trade war, is that both economies are feeling the effect. And China's trying to implement a stimulus. Uh, Trump is trying to end a government shutdown. Um, and obviously, you know, they're not entirely due to just the trade tensions, but both economies have issues. And mm. so for that reason, um, they really do have a lot to gain by um, uh, basically agreeing two things. Um, one is accepting more American investment and um, exports, probably services, and two, um, improving the level playing field. And that just means greater market opening sure. with institutions swept under the carpet. But I guess I'll give you one sort of um, my take on the timing, which is um, we've seen in the news of the United States, a number of candidates have announced for the 2020 yeah. uh, presidential elections. In a presidential election year, it's really hard to see how the incumbent president would want the economy to be anything but on the up. And this is not particular to this president. This is in general. In which case, um, having a U.S.-China trade war that lingers on through the rest of this year, I would say, is probably not that likely just because the political incentive um, would be there to Mm. try and resolve it. And obviously for China... um, it is the poor of the two countries. It has a great incentive to try and, and resolve it, especially on the investment side, yeah. and which doesn't get talked about as much, but actually it's probably more important in many ways than the tariffs. Fascinating analysis uh, there. I want to stay on uh, the economic chat just a little bit, but we'll turn our attention to Europe now, where France and Germany have today signed a treaty renewing their vows of post-war friendship. Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron met in the German border city of Aachen to update the 1963 Elysee Treaty, 
hoping to show the most important alliance in the EU project is still strong amidst the chaos of Brexit and the strains of immigration, a Eurozone crisis, and growing Euroscepticism as well from within the bloc, the leaders hoping to display some European strength perhaps, and they chose the home of Charlemagne, who Merkel today called the father of Europe, to sign a deal negotiated over the past year, in fact, Ivor, great symbolism here to start with, but with, with Merkel on the way out and Macron in endless trouble domestically, uh, will that symbolism help them at all? Well, I think that's perhaps why they chose to do yeah. it. I won't quite call it a swan song, but given the European project was essentially a Franco-German project, mm. going back to the iron and steel community in the early 50s, which is where the, 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 the whole project springs from, and seeing it looking like Will I say crumbling? Certainly showing strains at the edges. Populism in Poland mm. and Hungary, neo-anarchy in Italy, Brexit. Um, the, I think it's highly understandable. Whether it's right or wrong, it's highly understandable that the leaders of France and Germany would want to recommit themselves to the central project of never again, yeah. of peace in Europe. And I do think in the discussions about Brexit or about Salvini in Italy or, or, or Van and so forth, we lose sight of the fact that since the formation of the European, well, as it was, the Iron Steel community, the common market and so forth, Europe has had the longest period of peace in recorded history. And we lose sight of this grand project because Europe were rats in a sack for hundreds of years, nations, kings, emperors, popes, just fighting and warring. And for the last 70 years, it hasn't happened. And maybe it's 60 years, forgive my maths. And I do think that a restatement of that, 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 that noble project, which has worked until now, is worth doing. So whether they were right or wrong, you know, whether it was in their political interest, Personally, I think it's a brilliant thing to do. Hmm, interesting. The, the effects, Linda, of Britain's exit from the EU could be massive, but uh, yet to be seen. But we're seeing a trend towards more unity in Europe on this file. Uh, do you think there'll be more questioning of the relevance of the EU going forward? Or, you know, is this, is this a good sign for, for where it's going? I think um, certainly um, Emmanuel Macron's vision of Europe is more in line with some of um, the kind of the great Franco-Germans that, um, you know, that came before in terms of the European project. He really wants to see much greater um, integration. And I think what's interesting about them renewing this pact is that it's almost a signal for the kinds of values that uh, Europeans um, used to espouse much more regularly sure. and almost a pushback against the kind of um, fragmentation of alliances that's constantly being threatened. So, for instance, as part of this uh, uh, renewal of vows, I'm not quite sure about the metaphor here, but, um, you know, they, uh, you know, Germany and France agreed to come to each other's defense. That is NATO. Yeah. And NATO is under but, challenge, but, you know. So. Why, they are doing it because they're worried that NATO under Trump would not come to there. I mean, I yeah, think it's that's why real... it's a signal. You mm -hmm. know, they're trying to reaffirm these are the values. It's not just economic; it's security. This is what an alliance looks like. They want to talk about even a common market between uh, France and Germany. And so, I think all of those things, and of course, that's another signal, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is the common market is valuable. And so, if you look at countries that. Um, may consider Brexit 
as a little bit of something they're going to watch out for and if Britain gets a great deal. Do you think any country would consider Brexit (laughs) after the experience of the UK? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll just keep their powder dry and keep a watchful eye. But I think that's the symbolism of it. I mean, I think they've done a lot of these symbolic gestures actually recently. If you think about they, you know, they visited, um, was it uh, D-Day commemorations? Mm -hmm. They had their heads kind of, you know, touching each other. So, and I think in many ways, solidarity, the value um, that the European project is based on. Um, it's not a bad symbolic thing to have in this, um, in this, at this time. Well, Ivor, you did mention uh, Italy, Hungary, Poland. Uh, there's been a lot for Brussels and Macron and, and May to, uh, Merkel rather to, to deal with in the in the past year. Uh, so perhaps important that beyond um, beyond uh, the military alliance, but they move into an economic alliance to show that's still strong as well. Well, I think there was a few years ago before Brexit, there was life before Brexit, um, <laughs> people talked about a two-stage st- two, two Europe, yeah. whereby there was an outer core, the Hungarys, the Polands, the Britons, um, who went at a slower speed than the inner core, the original countries, uh, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, Germany, Italy, um, who created a much more um, integrated, fed- almost federal state, the ever closer union. That project, that's, we haven't heard much of that until, and I think what France and Germany are trying to say is we are still committed to the ever closer union, yeah. even if Italy isn't, probably Benelux countries, so it will be the original five, and I think what they're signalling is, well, whatever's happening on the periphery, we are committed to this ever closer union, yeah. this neo-federal state. Um, and I, I think that's quite an interesting long-term development because I think to some extent, if they are worried, if Brussels is worried about other countries thinking of doing a Brexit, although brackets, I think they'd be off their heads if they did. <laughs> but if they were, then this two-stage Europe, two-speed Europe, forgive me, um, does provide an answer. It says to the Hungarians and Polands, OK, you go at your own pace, we're steaming ahead and we'll put in place mechanisms so that there's flexibility and it's not going to cause the breakup of the union. Mm. I'd like to do a whole show perhaps on where Italy would fit in that now and today, but we won't won't get into that. You are listening to Midori House. Here with me, Daniel Bage, Ivor Gaber, and Linda Yu. Coming up next, we discuss today's Brexit headlines and would free lunch entice you to avoid commuting during rush hour. Perk up and tackle Monocle's Fit February issue. This is an essential guide for those looking to get in fighting shape for 2019. First up, we take a look at the people leading the way in whittling their nation's waistlines from Qatar to Tonga to Norway. On to the business section, where we sit down with Airbus's CEO to talk about what's in store for aviation, before checking out the company's streamlining and speeding up deliveries. In culture, we meet Rome's top art restorers, and in design, we touch down in Parma to meet Olaf, the smart architecture firm that's transformed a palace into a sleek hotel. Monocle's February issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. Still with me are Linda Yu and Ivor Gaber. We turn our attention back to the UK now, where opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn is facing backlash from his own party after calling for a Commons vote on a second referendum on Brexit. At the same time, the Labour leader says Prime Minister Theresa May is in denial about opposition to her amended deal. A vote on that will take place next week as MPs already putting forward a rival Brexit plan. Ivor, we've learned 
quite a bit in the past 24 hours, but the biggest news has to be from the EU, I think, despite the risks to peace. There must be a hard border between Northern and Ireland and the Republic, they say, should no-deal Brexit happen. I mean, they're just stating yeah. two things. One, something their, per- their position has always been, yeah. but two, something that is obvious, because if you have um, one customs entity here and an entirely different one there... There has to be, and with a land border, there has to be something in between. Mm. Um, and of course, the hard borders, it's called, which exists, um, has been thrown into harsh spotlight two days ago. There was a major bombing in Londonderry. Fortunately, yeah. nobody was killed, but it was a significant bombing. And yesterday, the dissident Republicans, called the new IRA, set off two other devices which didn't go off. I think that these are dangerous times and, and we need to take note that this isn't fun and games. Put mm. in a hard border, put in British soldiers or British policemen or British border guards in that border, and that is a red rag to bull to, to militant Republicans. It almost seems interesting, uh, you know, despite all, all the wrangling in the press and um, politics, that the EU has to restate this. Well, they have to restate it because Mrs. May, after losing uh, the vote in the Commons by a record-breaking majority, her so-called Plan B consists of going back to Brussels to renegotiate the border. And Brussels are just saying, Mm. there's nothing to negotiate. Um, We have laid down there will be a backstop, which means in the event of not forming some sort of customs area, um, the border will remain. Mm. So they had to restate it because Mrs. May just thought she could go back and get a different deal, which I don't see how she can. Well, Corbyn uh, says that he wants no deal off the table. That seems a bit of a stretch at this point, doesn't it, Linda? It's certainly one of the um, amendments. So, of course, um, you know, the uh, it seems like it's been weeks, but it's only been mm. a few days. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jeremy, yeah. so uh, the Prime Minister gave up on cross-party talks because she wouldn't take no deal off the table, which meant that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't join the cross-party right. um, party talks. And then, um, of course, Plan B got presented in Parliament, as Ivor says, <laughs> was not really much uh, different except yeah. more to be negotiated. And I think what you now have are a series of event- amendments. So at least a couple of them basically would amend the amenable bill um, amendable. Anyways, the Prime Minister's bill next Tuesday yeah. <laughs> um, will be presented and MPs will get to propose amendments. And at least a couple of them would say no deal. Um, there's others that will say second referendum. There's others that will say request an extension to Article 50. Yeah. So all of those things will be put on the table. The question um, really will be um, do any of those options have a majority in Parliament to support it? The answer at this point is probably not, in which case um, you're really left with almost, um, you know, where do you go? I mean, I think, you know, some of the notable things we've already discussed has happened today. The EU, um, I think, are signaling, well, the Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister, has said um, that, you know, they're not going to um, talk about um, renegotiating the the backstop. Poland has come out to say, well, why don't you put a five-year limit on the backstop? So the Europeans are almost trying to shore up, um, some of them are trying to try and, to help the Prime Minister get this Brexit withdrawal agreement through. So then they they can then talk about the trade deal. But 
clearly the Irish issue. And the European Commission spokesperson, the chief spokesperson, was the one who said, um, because no deal looks likely, you have no majority for any other option. Um, That's why we're beginning to talk about um, the infrastructure on the border, because we think that no deal Brexit is now a possibility. By the way, the IMF actually mentioned that as one of the risks that could Mm. really hurt global growth. Can I do something very silly and make a prediction? I going to dissent from one thing you said, I mean, broadly with you, I think there would be a majority of MPs for no, taking no deal off the table. Mm. I think there are a sufficient number of Conservatives who have expressed anxiety about it. Now, that doesn't move us much forward, but I think there might also be a majority for postponing, extending Article 50, mm. if the EU would agree. Um, none of the, All this does is, so to speak, kick the can down the road, but I mm. do think there is a majority for no a majority against no deal. But Mm. who knows? I might be wrong. No, no, no. I think there probably... um, There's a couple of amendments, the Grieve Amendment, and I think there's another one um, around preventing no deal. But the question is, if you take no deal off the table, but you can't agree on the deal, then where does that leave you come March 29th? So I think that's probably why, when discussing it, there's... There's big, uh, there's different versions, right? So you can have an indicative vote on the different options. And I think, I mean, extending Article 50, um, it is kicking the can down the road, but it does give more time well, to I, come up with an alternative. No, I think that it, <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say it only makes sense to vote against new, no deal if you combine it with extending Article 50. Yeah, right. I otherwise, agree with you, there's no point. Yeah, otherwise, yeah. what are you... And in fact, um, I think one of the issues around extending Article 50 is all the other EU27 have to agree yeah. to it. And they said previously that they would only agree to it on mm. two options. One is you're negotiating an off-the-shelf model like Norway with a plus, or two, you're going to have a second referendum. It's not an extension for an extension Or sake. a general election, yeah. but I don't think any yeah. of those are possibilities. So we're pretty much stuck where we have been for the last six, nine months, <laughs> five like years. Well, I'm happy we got to the bottom of that. We can move on then. Uh, finally today, uh, congestion impacts subway cars and buses during rush hour are an issue in cities the world over. But the Tokyo Metro Authority has a plan to ease commuter misery on the famously packed Tazai line, which normally runs at 199% of its loading capacity between the hours of 7.50 and 8.50 on weekday mornings. The Tokyo Metro says anyone who takes an earlier train for 10 consecutive working days will get a coupon for one free bowl of soba noodles. One bowl for being early for work for 10 days. Well, there's something good in being early for work all the time, but good deal, I really think. Terrible deal. (laughs) Terrible deal. They'd need to give me 10 bowls for one day. I mean, uh, but this is probably our failure to understand the what uh, the Japanese me- work mentality, yeah. where getting in early and staying late is a great badge of honour, and you sit there thinking to yourself, I've got in even earlier, and I'm eventually going to get a bowl of noodles. It's all <laughs> about perceptions. I don't think it would even be suggested in any other country in the world, but it's indicative of a real problem. Yeah. That, well, I say a real problem. In the in in Europe, more and more businesses are recognising that because of online, um, it's possible for people not to do five days a week, nine to five, flexible working, coming in at different hours, working from home. But the um, I'm desperately trying to remember the name of g- given to the um, Tokyo workers. They're, they're not called Minutemen. They're called Salarymen, yeah. who 
And I, I've spent a little time in Tokyo, and it's actually quite amusing but sad to watch, to be in a newsroom where I was, and after the bulletin's over, and nobody wanting to leave. Now, I have to say, in a British newsroom, OK, um, people... People leave very quickly. They might head to the <laughs> pub. Hard, yeah. But watching them, seeing who is going to be the first to leave, there's a different mentality, and I'll pass. I don't understand it, mm. but I don't think it's a very good deal. Well, no matter what people are going uh, to cram trains and buses and highways at certain times uh, of the day because of uh, sort of the 9 to 5 or, or thereabouts uh, the world over. Isn't that right? We still have this. Even though Iber uh, mentioned we can work online, we still have that all over the world. There's still this, this working hours. Isn't that part of the problem? Yeah, I think flexible working would help, but I think um, there are more experiments now around it, flexible working times. Um, But I think, you know, there's things you have to do around it, as in has to be consistent. People need to know when to get you. But I think, you know, why not? It's the future. Um, And really being crammed into a 199 (laughs) capacity uh, subway does not sound very pleasant at all. And there's a workplace I heard of which has a different way of getting people to avoid uh, Mm. rush hour, is they they have limited uh, car park spaces. So it's first come, first serve. It's all people come in early to get a parking That sounds great. Have people race to work. (laughs) (laughs) But they leave early too. I have to say, I had a I was I had a position a few years ago. I lived in North London, and my um, the the you know the college I was working at was in South East London, and my journey through three trains and a bus um, took an hour and a quarter on a good day, and if it, on a bad day I would come into work on time, but feeling bruised yeah. and irritated and angry. And I used to warn my colleagues, I was head of department at departmental meeting, I said, let me warn you, I've had a bad journey. And I do think there's a serious aspect to it. This is not the most efficient way of working when we're all crowding into city centres. Tube lines, subway lines, train lines being extended here in London, in China, I noticed today they've announced more subway stations, but Mm. there's a limit to how much we can physically cram people in and expect them to work efficiently and work well. Mm. Well, really interesting. I think uh, my colleagues will roll their eyes if they're listening. I'm quite evangelical about cycling, so I can just say that may solve some problems, but I would do almost anything to stay off the central line in London, because I see how people arrive at the office after taking that. But anyhow, we, we shall uh, we shall leave it there. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Ivor Gaber and Linda Yu, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show, research by Martha Libri, our studio manager, David Stevens. There is more music next. And then at 1900 hours, it is Monocle on Design with Mr. Josh Fennert. And we'll have more on the day's main news stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 with your host, Emma Nelson. That's 1700 in New York. Midori House back tomorrow at the same time with me, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.